Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Heard the call to build your small business? Make it happen with a .NET domain name, the place for dreamers for 30 years and counting. Visit keepdreamingup.net for tips and advice. Whether you're just getting started or looking to grow, that's keepdreamingup.net. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the latest polls driving the news in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. We're so excited to have Nate Cohn from The New York Times here today with us. Uh, Nate, we're so glad we could have you on. Thanks for inviting me. So tell us a little bit about, you're with The Upshot at The New York Times. You cover polling and data. Tell us a little bit about your background covering polling and uh, what you find so interesting about it. That's a tough question. I don't have much of a background in it. Before I became a journalist, I worked at an international security think tank, which did not require me to know very much about polling at all. In fact, I would say it required me to know absolutely nothing about polling. Um, and I started a blog about politics on the side near the end of my time there. And I have just been learning about uh, politics and elections and polling since. And I've um, learned a lot and hopefully I do an okay job of, of covering it. How do you figure out a good poll from a not good poll? How do you know which pollsters to trust? How, how do you evaluate? How do you make sense of it all? Um, I am concerned about whether pollsters are taking representative samples that seem like they could capture the entire uh, population of people that they want to talk to. Uh, so if a pollster is, you know, using shortcuts to talk to voters with cell phones, like using a supplemental online panel, that's potentially troubling without much evidence demonstrating that they're succeeding in talking to those voters. If they don't try to talk to people without cell phones at all, I find that to be problematic. Um, I'm also concerned about um, waiting and whether they're waiting to um, a population, uh, waiting to a universe that actually reflects the group of people that uh, they intend to sample. So I see a lot of polls right now that, um, you know, are, are, say, sampling voters that have participated in one or two of the last three primary elections and it results in a sample that's much older than a likely primary electorate. And I think that's part of why Bernie Sanders has underperformed in some polls. And I think it's also potentially a reason why uh, Democrats could be understated in some general election polls. Like a Survey USA poll the other day showed black voters at 14% of the electorate because they had such a tight uh, screen and they were waiting to uh, the, the uh, universe of people who is much likelier to participate than the actual electorate. So working in the sort of data journalism world, uh, you know, this whole field has kind of blossomed in the last couple of years. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that I've always heard is, well, why is data journalism special and different? Shouldn't journalists all along have been using data to back up their conclusions, oh, yeah. integrating it into their stories? I mean, it, how much is data journalism just 
good journalism and we've just put this other label on it because oh, people I, were not using data before. Absolutely. I mean, you heard the little story I told at the beginning that I have a, almost no background in this area. And I think the fact that I've managed to jump in and be pretty good at this job is as much an indictment of traditional journalism as it says anything <laughs> about my own abilities. I think that, you know, in, in, on the simple stuff, you know, that's kind of how you, I feel about my podcasting technical <laughs> skills. <laughs> Um, We're just interlopers. We've, we've party crashed. Exactly. Um, and I think that's especially true um, on the simple stuff, like using a polling average and recognizing outliers. Um, now, there, there are some issues there where, you know, there are incentives for traditional journalists to overhype um, outlying polls because they tell more interesting stories. But I think that goes directly to your point that, in fact, it would just be better journal. It would, it's, it's just better journalism in some respects. I do think there are a few areas in which data journalism is special. I mean, traditional reporters do not have um, the set of, you know, mathematical skills that, or statistical skills or data management skills that uh, let you comb through larger data sets or let you build basic models that, you know, can tell you important things about um, what's going on or they might or just because they're less inclined towards numbers they might be intimidated from going through even the basic cross tabs of a survey and collecting them over time and compiling them to learn something about how sub small groups might be voting um and i think that probably does require different types of hires than the hires that journalists that uh, that, that newspapers or magazines or uh, television stations tr- traditionally hire um but I, I think your point um is right especially on the basics now, there are, again, as the blossoming of data journalism has occurred, I mean, I guess the, the founding fathers, people would point to Nate Silver, but I mean, now there are a whole host of places where you can go and get interesting coverage of, of data, whether it's something like The Upshot, whether it is 538, um, you know, Vox dabbles in this space. What do you all at The Upshot sort of think of as the, as the thing that differentiates you and makes you... You know, why should I make the upshot my homepage? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know that any of the data journalism websites ought to be your homepage, to be honest. I mean, we <laughs> all cover a, a very narrow space. Um, I don't think the data journalism is a replacement for traditional journalism. I think Well, it's going to be either you guys are going to be go fug yourself and it's going to be all about fashion stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Frankly. Well, that, if that's the alternative, then, uh, then, I'm, then I, I think I can make a better case for the upshot as your homepage. Um, I think that we that compared to 538 we um are sort of more focused on politics economics and policy while they cover a broader set of areas i think we're a little less um exclusively focused on the data i think we do more of what you would call explanatory journalism um which is sort of a a term that vox likes but i think that if you were describing a spectrum from data journalism to explanatory journalism that we would fall somewhere closer to the middle than 538 or or vox for that matter um, and I also think we have the best graphics. And I, I think that is not just um, in the sense that we have better graphics that accompany our pieces, but that the graphics are uh, can often be are often standalone pieces and standalone journalism that um, I think you find at the upshot that you don't find anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you know, obviously, it's important for your own internal metrics to have things that are shareable. But when you do polling and work in data for a living, having something that visually makes sense is simply just another way to explain it in a way that people understand. Because people really get absolutely bored to tears if you say, "Okay," and on this question, thirty percent said this, and on this question, twenty percent said <laughs> that. I mean, that's the world's worst presentation. I mean, that's why people, you know, rely so 
heavily on graphics when you work for work for clients. There, there's just this whole area though um, where you can just do things with data visualization that you can't even really do uh, with words. Um, you know, we have these election night live models that I think are pretty cool that I think are much that are much easier to do live in graphical form than they are to do in a live chat. I think that um, maps um, visualizing um, spatial or geographic phenomenon is much easier with great graphics than it is to say, oh, in the northwestern part of the country, you know, Bernie's going to do really well. Um, and I think that really um, it is a much more and it's it's it. I think it improves the quality of the journalism in addition to um, being easier to digest. You know, it, when Super Tuesday after the fir- I guess the first Super Tuesday, you guys had a great table, and this wasn't a visualization. This was simply a table of exit polls across the state, so you could really compare what demographic groups did better. Uh, you know, were more in one candidate's base versus another, and it just makes it so much easier than having to sift through all of those tables, which you could certainly do and then make your own table, but just to have something centrally located that you can kind of make sense of all of it at one time is, is hugely helpful. I agree. And I think that, and I, I can't speak to 538 or Vox, but I can say that, you know, certainly our graphic staff really thinks a lot about, um, readers in a way that, I don't think traditional journalists think about readers. I think they go and write their 1,200 piece. I, I mean, I, for the most part, think about, okay, this is the argument I'm going to make. I'm going to make it. They spend a lot of time thinking about, okay, what is the thing that I can create that uh, does the most to communicate this idea clearly to the person who I'm trying to communicate it to? It's really important. So, so we've got to talk a little bit about 2016. Right, and- yeah. Uh, I, I count myself among those who got the whole Trump thing wrong during last summer. You know, to me, reading through the data, Trump's favorables were not great among yeah. Republican voters. Too many other people had really low name ID. It just didn't seem likely. Yes, the data showed that voters were very uh, frustrated, but that there were a whole bunch of other reasons why it did not seem like – if I went back in time – uh, I don't think I would have done it that much different. Yeah, I, 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 I don't think when I go back and look at what the polls looked like in the summer that Absolutely. the analysis was wrong. But what do you think we're is there? What do you think there's a chance we're missing now, or what do you think most kind of pundits and commentators are missing now when when they talk about the polls? Is there anything that you're seeing that you think people aren't paying adequate attention to, or people are misrepresenting? I, that's a good question. I think that. So my mind went somewhere slightly different, which is that I have seen a lot of tweets about how tr- how we're certainly going to a contested convention or something like that, and I, I don't see that at all. I think Trump could easily get the delegates that he needs uh, to win a majority. I, I do think that one thing that might be that people might be missing is that Trump is, I think, doing worse um, in the actual results than the national polls might lead you to believe. I think he, I think that if you were to take the the results of so far from all of the states so far this month, or even excluding those in Super Tuesday, that you might guess that Trump is on pace for something like thirty eight or forty percent of the national popular vote. And there are a lot of polls showing the numbers much higher than that, um, particularly from the online pollsters. So I think that we're getting an interesting opportunity to uh, compare uh, the results of polling to. Um, actual results, and I think that it, it suggests that Trump may be a little weaker than uh, the national polling suggests. And yet, I also think that people are underestimating his chances of reaching a majority of delegates. So I don't know whether what that tells us um, overall, since those two points would seem to be 
slightly contradictory. I mean, why do you uh, think that is? Do you think that's because other candidates in the states where there are actual contests, they have a field operation, you know, more than Trump's own on the ground operation. You have folks really lobbying. Okay. We got to make sure vote for somebody, whoever no, it is. The turnout is so good though, that I feel like, or so high, I guess I should say that I find it hard to believe that Trump is being hurt too much by by these field operations. I mean, I have two. I, I guess I have two thoughts. The first is that it does seem, if we look over the Republican primaries, not just from this year, but also from 2012 and 2008, that there's a tendency for the polls to underestimate the most ideologically conservative candidates. I mean, I don't remember. I don't know if you remember this, but Rick Santorum consistently beat his final polling results in the South in mm-hmm. 2012. Ted Cruz has done that. Um, he did that on he did that on March 15th, even though it still left him. Short, he did it in Iowa. He's done it in other conservative states. Um, and then I also – so that's part of it. Um, but that doesn't really – I'm not sure how much that explains Trump underperforming his final poll numbers as much as it would explain the difference in the margin. Hmm. And then what about on the Democratic side? Right now you have a piece about how Sanders can win. Obviously Clinton had a tremendous night uh, last – last uh, or this week rather. Um, but you know the Sanders campaign – insists that they have in a variety of states where they're going to do well coming up yeah. and then, you know, have the energy to go to so California. One fun thing that I don't know how many people really realize is that writers don't actually write their headlines. Editors do. <laughs> and I don't think I would have put the headline how Sanders could win on the top of that piece. I mean, I think that Sanders is an extremely difficult path. And I think that might even be an understatement. I do think there are a lot of states where you can do well. I think you can do well in these caucuses out west, and I think you can do well in Utah and Montana, and maybe you'll do well in Wisconsin and maybe in West Virginia. But you know, these are all pretty small states, and the preponderance of the delegates that are left on the Democratic side are from big, diverse, and affluent states along the coast like California and New York and New Jersey. And you know, Sanders is probably going to have to win those states by at least 10 percentage points, even if you think he does very well in the other states I just mentioned earlier, where Sanders could hope to eclipse the sort of 18% margin he needs um, overall in order to overcome his delegate deficit. And you know, Sanders just hasn't done anything like that so far. Uh, he, he, the best performance that he has in a big primary state that's modestly diverse was his two-point win in Michigan. And that, that wouldn't even come close to getting it done. And I think Michigan is a less diverse and less affluent state then the states along the coast will need to win by much more. So, you know, I, I think that the piece described Sanders' path to victory, and so far as it said, he'll need to win a bunch of states by twenty points. That so far he would you would expect him to lose, uh, but I, I don't think that he's anywhere near on track uh, to win. So, so you're saying there's a chance then, right? <laughs> oh, go ahead. Oh yeah, right. Great chance. I almost feel bad for all these people that are st- that are still like donating money for him at this point, though. You know, like. They're being told that there's a there's a way that they can do this, and it's just extremely hard for me to see it. He just hasn't. He, there's no part of this primary season where he has come even close to doing as well as he will need to do. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. The Times, right? I mean, at least when I looked at it, had your piece right underneath a piece that said Obama signaling. I forget the headline exactly. Obama signaling behind the scenes that you know it's time to rally behind clinton and that was right above your piece like path for you know here's a path for sanders which you're right the headline was very much different from the tone and then in politico i guess it's today the reporter who wrote the story rubio is the savior of the republican party had to write his take and also made the same case like hey i didn't write the headline you know the article is yeah. a little bit different so annals of optimizing headlines 
Yes. So uh, this is really getting inside baseball. But the, the piece like what's Bernie's path to victory has done extraordinarily well on Facebook. It's been shared by all of these Bernie Sanders people, and I feel terrible about it because I don't think it accurately reflects you know, the substance of the piece or my own feelings on the matter, and yet we're going to get rewarded thoroughly for it. So as of right now, I mean, every week when Margie and I sit down to do our show, we are taking a look at the uh, at the, the polls in the field or the polls that have come out of the field, and we're trying to make our assessments. And there was a while when too many polls was the, the mantra of the day, that we would have <laughs> just too much data to sift through and it was overwhelming and what do we make of it and now we're facing the opposite um where you know we've got these contests coming up on on the show that we just released you know in arizona there's one private republican firm that's releasing data uh we found marquette was doing polling in wisconsin but they hadn't done anything in the last month um what state coming up in the either republican or democratic contest if if you had the budget to poll one state Ooh. really well, and you could only pull one side of the contest, which which would you pick? I can only pull one side. I don't get both states. Um, that's hard. I mean, I think there would be an okay, argument. We'll give, for- we'll give you both sides. You get to, you get both the Democratic and the Republican side, but you so- have to pick one state. <laughs> <laughs> so if I guess I have two answers. The first would be California. It's the largest state. I think it's uh, – a state that Trump probably needs to win if he wants to get 1237. Um, and the second choice would be Arizona because it is, it, it is very soon. It's a winner-take-all state. I think it's a state where Cruz can be very competitive, although the, the one little bit of polling data we have suggests that Trump has a, has a modest advantage there. Um, and I also think that one of the fun things about Arizona is that because it's next to California, I think you learn something about California from uh, what you see in Arizona uh, especially on the Republican side where the preponderance of the electorate is in Southern California, which has a tendency to vote somewhat like uh, the state of Arizona. Um, I'm really fascinated to see what happens in Arizona. I think that based on you know, sort of the results we've seen so far, you'd expect Trump to be somewhat weaker out West uh, than he has been um, in the East. And I think you would also expect Cruz to be stronger. Whether that can get him over the top, I don't know. But um, I think that race... I think that whether that race is as competitive as I'm guessing it might be is a really important indicator of whether Trump can be denied the nomination or not. Right. That's good. That's a good answer. Um, so what are you looking for next? Like what are some stories you're well, we have Arizona about? next week. So, <laughs> um, so I campaign doesn't am, take a holiday. Yeah. I'm, I'm writing a piece on sort of outlining what kind of places, uh, Trump needs to win in order to get to 1237. Uh, so that'll be fun. Um, I'm writing a piece about um, why Trump is poised to do so well in the blue states when, you know, I think a lot of people would at least guess that the blue states would be tough for him uh, because they're better educated. Um, and I'm writing a piece on the vaunted missing white voters um, based on voter file data. That tells us that I think suggests that the missing white voters might not be as receptive to conservatives as it has been assumed. Hmm. Yes. Oh, I can't wait to read this. This has been my theory for a while that that this whole Cruz notion that all these missing voters are really just like secretly deeply, deeply conservative and they've been waiting for a true believer. I think that's kind of a bunch of baloney. And I think Trump is probably the one that's got it 
closer to a message that would resonate with them. But I, I can't wait to read what you find. Well, I'll get the sneak. I guess the sneak preview is that the missing white voters and defined in the way that at least Sean Trendy did after the 2012 election, which is people who voted in 2008 but not 2012, were significantly likely to be registered as Democrats, past Democratic primary voters, and young uh, compared to those who actually turned out. Ah, fascinating. fascinating. In several of these states, they're dem- in several of these states. I think that you would argue that they might they they were that they might have favored Obama by a significant margin if they had voted. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Now Excellent. I think that there's oh, another interesting question though, which is what about the real missing white voters, so the people that haven't voted at all, um, that didn't vote in 08 or 04 or 12. Though that's where I would think that you could argue at least that Trump would have the best opportunity because they tend to be less educated. True, but, um, but turning, at least based on census data, right? But getting those people out there is really hard. Yeah, um, for and sure. I've been starting to look through some of the voter registration data um, so far this year, and I don't see that much evidence of a surge in newly registered voters. So, you know, they guess that maybe they could be drawn out for the general, but not the primary. But it doesn't look to me like, say, Obama in two thousand eight. I think getting people to, who have not voted in presidential elections to turn out for the first time, I mean, is a huge, huge obstacle, right? I mean, I think any candidate ultimately ha- yeah. that is relying on that to win is always going to be at a disadvantage. Um, you know, simply I, just the we're not really making spot. it. Yeah, we're not making it any easier. I mean, I guess the other thing to look at would be Especially does this vary from state to state, states that have same day registration or vote by mail. Maybe that's a little bit different than states that have more traditional voting methods. Oh, so I would have thought that vote by mail would not be very good for um, people who had not voted before. But I don't know. I don't have any data on that. Just, it seems like it's, a, it's almost a higher burden to make people sign up. Or they have to be registered earlier that way, right? To apply for an absentee ballot in a lot of states. It depends on the place. I don't know. It depends One on thing the, I, the, other thing, the other thing that's interesting to me is that, you know, and I don't know – very much about it is people who are old and haven't voted before. You know, it's one thing to try and mobilize young people. They're in colleges. They, you know, many of the young people who haven't voted might still be political, but older young, older people who haven't voted before, that seems like a real challenge to me. I mean, it says a lot about them that they've been around for as long as they have and haven't participated in the process. Right. And finally decide Trump's the guy. Oh yeah, no, that yeah, exactly. That just proves how much they'll like Trump. <laughs> um, good right, right. <laughs> um, okay, well, Nate, this is really great. We've really loved having you. Um, I think this is a really great conversation. How can folks find you? Tell us a little bit about how folks can find you on the Upshot on Twitter. Where else people can follow what you're working on? Um. So the upshot is at is at the New York Times. It's NewYorkTimes.com slash upshot. And I'm on Twitter probably more than I ought to be at Nate underscore cone. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks again. We really appreciate it. it. Yeah, thanks for having me. When we listen to the radio, we never agree on the station. Classic rock. Hip hop. Pop. Guys, quiet. The one thing we do agree on, we all want an awesome free phone. That's why we switched to MetroPCS. Stop by MetroPCS with the whole family and get four free phones of your choice from brands you love, like Samsung, Motorola, and LG when you switch. MetroPCS. Wireless. Figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. Sales tax not included in phone price. Free phone requires port. Excludes numbers on the T-Mobile network. See store for details and terms and conditions.